Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Jay and Ellie, and I'm a knight of Nintendo. I know that makes me sound like a fanboy, but really it's all I have time for anymore. It makes you Captain N. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're old. Um, I'm Laura. <laughs> I so seriously, I thought that game was a. I thought that show was a fever dream for a very long time until like the internet actually got around to, you know, having listings for it. It's ridiculous. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> this is a great uh, cold open. It sure is. It sure is, folks. Um, I, I'm Lorelai Weissel, and I'm just I, I'm just I guess the knight of derailing this podcast. It's I. How many cold opens have I derailed? Make with jokes. That was good. I, Actually, I, the knight of derailing this podcast is good. Like. How many minutes do I add on to each episode when I do this? <laughs> I'm a menace and must be stopped. I'm Brian Dawes, and I'm the knight of consistency, because I'm always the same, it seems like. <laughs> I'm Ashley Barrow, and I'm the knight of sleepy. That's a good one. I'm Carrie Thomas, and I'm the knight of flying to Atlanta very soon. <laughs> In the night, yes. Yes. Uh, so that brings me to our first bit of news is you will find the entire cast of the Vorthos cast at GP Atlanta this weekend. We will all be overlapping on Saturday, although how many of us are Friday or Sunday might vary. So if you want to catch us, look us up on Saturday. Because we'll be at the event, there is no episode the following week. So just listen to this one again. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we'll try to post where we are on Twitter or whatnot, but yeah, just follow us there. Yeah, pay attention to yeah, just the... just follow us, like, physically in your car. Just find us, and <laughs> we'll show you how to get there. Yeah, just pay attention to at the Vorthos cast on Twitter. We'll we'll update some things when, when we get there. It'll be fun. And the week we get back, we will have the Flavor Gems episode, so it'll be out a little later than you might be used to, but not too much later. We also have two free preview cards this Thursday. Uh, that you will enjoy seeing, and we will get to those later. It's interesting because, well, I can't even talk about it. So, (laughs) then finally... Very elegant. The last thing I wanted to say was today, Ryan Pancoast's Kenrith family portrait came out the day we're recording this, Thursday, September 12th, and oh my god. It is, like, a masterpiece. So, if you've read the story and get attached to these characters, it is fantastic. I want that art so bad. It is so great for being prominent, blended family, biracial family, uh, in a way that Chandra didn't have in Kaladesh. Because I went back and looked... And there's, like, one image with Chandra with both her parents, and they're in hiding in a cart. <laughs> so, you know, it's the kind of thing that's just really nice to see. So, today we're going to talk a little bit, just to give you some grounding and context, a little bit about Eldraine world building. So, on Eldraine, the world is divided into the wilds, which are populated by the fae, the fair folk, whatever you want to call them, all the fantasy creatures. 
And then there's the realm, which is populated by humanity. So the wilds are not a logical place. The humans who eventually created the realm pushed back against their elvish overlords generations and generations ago. We don't know exactly how long and kind of carved a kingdom out for themselves of order from the chaos of the wilds. But in the wilds, that's where most of the elves live. Um, they still gather in an elvish uh, council. Fairies live there that range from blue, which are the tiny fairies we're used to, white fairies, which are more like the fairy godmother trope, and black fairies, which are kind of the size of like an imp. You know, they're like knee height or something. Uh, and they're the more devious, trickster, cruel fairies. Giants and undines, which are this plane's version of merfolk, live out in the wilds and all sorts of other fantasy creatures. And one of the big points of contention are humans questing out into the wilds and running across these creatures, or these creatures exiting the wilds into the realm and need to be fought off by humanity. So the realm is made up of five kingdoms, each centered around a vir each centered around a virtue and a color of mana. Knights can quest to become a, uh, a knight of each of these courts, as they're called. Uh, and the High King, in this case, Algonus Kenrith, is, the, uh, is a knight of all five kingdoms. Now, the High King is selected by a creature called the Questing Beast, who gives them like a magic sword, and they have to go off and do all these quests to earn the title of High King. So the title of High King is not hereditary, Will and Rowan aren't going to become High King and Queen if their father dies. Well, that would be gross because they're siblings. Oh, that's true too. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I should say King King or Queen. King or Queen. I was thinking kind of like... Uh, um, Co-rulers? No, 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 no. The, uh, the cabinet. What's it called? Narnia. I was thinking like a Narnia situation where they're the, the, the siblings were the all cabinet. working together. The cabinet. The, 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 the cabinet. It's like covered. The ca whatever. It's uh, the, the wardrobe. Wardrobe. <laughs> wardrobe. Thank you. You mean the Thank one you. that's right in the title, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? Yeah, the title I couldn't remember. So the first white aligned court is Ardenvale, and they're centered around the virtue of loyalty, and they have this magical fire deep within the castle on top of this rock where humanity joined together and made their first stand against the Fae. And uh, this white flame is the Circle of Loyalty. And to become a Knight of Ardenvale, you have to pass through the Circle of Loyalty. And if you are a loyal person in your heart, you'll pass through unharmed. Uh, it is ruled directly by the High King, along with his Queen, Linden, who will get into more of her backstory in the novel stuff. So the blue-aligned court is centered in Castle Vantress, which is in the middle of this lake called the Lochmere, and it sits on top of a, um, a... It's it's like a big sinkhole with waterfalls, and it leads down to a giant magic mirror that usually stays submerged underwater. And their knightly virtue is knowledge, uh, where... Uh, all the other four virtues are nice, but if you don't have the knowledge of where and how to apply them, then they're kind of worthless. So then we've got Lochthwain. Is that how you pronounce it? Lochthwain? 
Luck Twain, whatever. Their, <laughs> their virtue, they're the black aligned uh, court and their virtue is persistence. And they see that through their quests for what is the Holy Grail analog called the Cauldron of Eternity. They're ruled by one of the few remaining elves in the human realm, uh, Queen Aara. And she has a uh, uh, a kind of funny... <clears throat> she seems to always be celebrating a funeral and a wedding right around the same time because she keeps marrying and sending her suitors off to uh, claim the Cauldron of Eternity. Uh, and they don't make it. So she waits a year and then they're presumed dead. They hold a funeral. And uh, yeah. So um, my favorite of the courts is the Burning Yard at Embereth, which isn't actually a castle. It's uh, a whole set of tournament grounds where people are jousting and sparring and fighting um, next to uh, this kind of uh, open magmatic fissure. And uh, they value courage. And uh, I, I love this take the most, and the reason they're my favorite court is that uh, to them, courage isn't the abolition of fear. It is embracing your fear and un understanding your fear. And um, the goal isn't to not be afraid. It's to understand that it's okay to be afraid and still be able to go out and fight and win. And the courage to succeed despite your fear while... Um, embracing it and uh, understanding that as a part of the self. And their uh, kind of uh, sacred thing is uh, this rock called the Iron Crag. And I'm not going to say a whole lot about it right now because not a lot has been said about it publicly, but it's very cool. So pay attention to this set as it continues to get previewed. The last court is the green court known as Garenbrig. So their value is strength, and not just being strong, but strength in the service of others. They are ruled by King Yorvo, who is the last giant to remain in the realm. Uh, his father deposed a corrupt human king, and so for as long as any human can remember, your either Yorvo or his father were ruling the realm. In Garenbrig, they have what's called the Nomon Portal, which is this, inside this henge of stones, a portal that can take you anywhere into the wilds. It's like a shortcut into this weird space in the wild, which is doesn't quite line up geographically. Like, you might, uh, two different bridges across the same river don't lead to the same bank, necessarily. So there's some weird metaphysical stuff going on there. But the Nomon portal can take you directly where you want to go. And it factors into this story. So let's talk about Throne of Eldraine, The Wildered Quest. So those of us who finished it, let's first of all, first impressions, who enjoyed it? Yeah, I liked it. So th there are no nays here. That's good, because I really enjoyed this one too. We are once again going to have an episode of this podcast where I absolutely fawn over Kate Elliott's work because I adore everything she has written for magic so far. It's some of my favorite things that have been published under this IP. So let's jump in to the summary. So it starts off uh, with part one harvest. We're introduced to Garrick, 
whose curse has been regressing, and he attacks a planeswalker who comes across his path named Oko. Oko is a shapeshifter who uses a glamour on him and nicknames Garrick Dog, and Dog becomes his servant. What's interesting is that Oko takes note when Garrick says Liliana's Vess's name. So he doesn't recognize Garrick, but he does recognize Liliana Vess's name. We don't get any more information than that, but it's something interesting. Then we cut to Will and Rowan Kenrith, who you might remember from Battle Bond. This takes place before Battle Bond. Love those kids. They're great. They end up missing the Grand Procession, uh, which is their father's tour of the Five Kingdoms. Uh, They meet their mother, who tells them, no, you can't go. You know, the rule was you get treated like everyone else. You missed it. The gate is closed. And they meet their cute little siblings, Eric and Hazel. This is what I was talking about with the portrait before. So uh, Queen Linden is black. Their younger siblings are both biracial. Uh, We don't know the story with Will and Rowan's mother just yet, but we'll get to it in the story. And uh, it's just very sweet because, you know, Linden is very much their mother. They, They subvert the evil stepmother trope for this story. So the twins, being 17 year olds, sneak out and take a shortcut through the wilds in order to catch up. Except just stepping foot in the wilds has a lot of uh, danger, and they're assaulted by a group of redcaps, which are this world's version of goblins. Uh, They're saved by Oko and Dog, who follow them to meet up with the Grand Procession. And after they arrive and meet up with their friends, um, their cry goes out, and the High King has gone missing. All right, so that's about it for part one. What what do people have to say about it? I adore Oko. I love him so much. Um, I'm a little biased because I I wrote him for Arena and and had a lot of fun digging into his character. But but he is he is so delightfully mercurial and manipulative and um, likens himself to a servant, an honorable servant helping others and and is. Really just leverage the way he leverages information, the way he turns all of Rowan's questions back on her to dig out even more and more information. Um, like when we first meet him in this book, he doesn't even have his villainous plot planned out. It, I mean, like that doesn't happen until he's just kind of like on a whim on a road meeting these kids and then decides, hey, gonna do some nefarious things later, I guess. Like he is, he's so enjoyable and, um, I'm happy he exists. I'm excited uh, about a story about twins because I am a twin. And another thing that I was excited about and did enjoy about this is that I like stories about teenagers and kids. So the protagonists are teenagers. I'm into that. Um, I enjoyed the fact that, uh, Rowan is so adamant about will being the 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 loose cannon of the of the two of them <laughs> and throughout the the rest of the novel it turns out she's the actual wild cannon of the of the two will's a little bit more introspective he is prone to wandering off in thought but like if i were going to bet on which one would cause the most trouble obviously it's going to be the red aligned one so but in her head in the novel or in the book or the story, book, whatever, 
in her head in the story, she is she looks upon Will as the person most likely to get her in trouble, whereas it turns out a lot of the time it seems like she's the one getting them in the most trouble. <laughs> their their dynamic is really fun. Um, I, th- I think Kate wrote them um, in such a really ground like like I mean like Ashley said. Um, I mean they they feel like seventeen year old siblings just arguing with each other the whole time and that's that's relatable rowan is really relatable um the the way the way she gets angry um i i I did also appreciate a a small hint that will is bi because that's queer and good and and we need more of that in magic and and i always appreciate that he uh so so there's a character titus um one of the friends who's he's a knight Ardenvale and uh, Rowan has a huge crush on him and then uh, Will has a huge crush on Cerise a uh, healer that uh, Rowan is friends with Um, but then Will also has this line from his point of view where he uh, talks about how fantastic and wonderful Titus is and I'm just like oh boy you crushing too Um, and that's nice to see he's a good boy I like Will a lot my greatest fear is that Oko's recognition of Liliana Vess even gives like 1% of credibility to Mark Rosewater's um, Bolas head machinations off plane to make sure Garuk didn't come and interrupt his war. And oh, I, wow. I I don't like that. But at the same time, doesn't seem to be the case reading the story in isolation. Hopefully stays that way. <laughs> oh, I don't like that either, and there's zero evidence <laughs> for that, and you will not see me report any ideas like, or uh, you will not see me support any ideas like that at all. What's really great about Oko, I think, is it's not clear how much of what he's doing is planned and how much of what he's doing is like a whim, because he does just happen across the Kenriths. You know, and then manages to pump them for a lot of information he would need regarding the realm. And it's just very interesting because he's like kind of, you know, I think the blue is definitely there as in addition to the green, like the opportunity presents itself and he takes advantage of it. Plus, it seems like his skill set is also a kind of telepathy where he can extract information as long as it's like. Even if it's not deep thought penetration, it can he can kind of glean a lot of information as it's if it's at the forefront of your mind. So I feel like that's something that I felt like he got a lot more information out of simple conversations than most people would. Um, so uh, I don't actually think that's a special power. Rowan gets very flustered when she sees him because he's hot. He's doing a hot person thing and knows how to use information and knows how to manipulate people. I think he's doing the Fae thing where he just exudes raw sex and people talk to him and they say way too much and then he uses that information against him. That that That's pretty archetypical. We see that a lot. Um, so if you're a Shakespeare fan and you've seen Midsummer's Night Dream, um, Oko is very much an Oberon figure um, and... Uh, <laughs> He is, uh, I, I can tell you um, that uh, most of his quote-unquote plan is probably unplanned. And uh, just just the way he operates and the, the um, it's, it's very relatable um, as a uh, fellow disaster queer. Like, there's, there's no way any of this was planned. Oko is just, like, fell ass backwards into 
this entire situation and just ran away with it because he just does because he's weird. It's great. I love him. Let's move on to part two. So at beginning of part two, it's now three months later. The High King has been missing for three months. That was the call, the cry that went out. And the twins are now 18, so they're old enough to go out questing on their own. So they, well, first of all, there's a great moment with Hazel, where Hazel uses her slingshot to kill a blue fairy that's gotten into the castle. (laughs) She's mean. She's a little badass. Hashtag Hazel Beskinrith. (laughs) I'm I'm apparently the only one who likes Eric best. I like them both. They're they're both, they're they're good Kenriths. They're all good Kenriths, Lorelai. But Hazel's best. They, so they decide to go out questing for their father, and they're joined by their friends Cerise and Titus, who we mentioned, and also uh, their father's, not really second in command, but one of his best friends, Kate, uh, a guy named Cato, a very experienced knight. As they travel, they come across a town that's being attacked by an ogre, uh, and there's a great moment, Cerise rides a, like a bearded unicorn. And the bearded unicorn ends up impaling the ogre on its horn and killing it because uh, the rest of them are having trouble with it. I, I loved this moment because unicorns are described in the novel and, and world building as beasts of the wilds and, and have lent help to some knights. Um, so this was like a good moment of uh, really classic fairy tale storytelling where the thing you think is elegant and beautiful and healing and helpful like has this dark violent side to it it was so good (laughs) i think we should note here as well that the creatures of the wilds aren't all evil they just tend to be more wild and chaotic than the realm so a lot of creatures of the wilds will help humans and a lot will hurt them Uh, it's not like the wilds are the villains here it's just too chaotic for humanity so they meet a lore mage named elowin who notices who has an affinity to see like witches hexes and she notices a hex on the twins uh that entangles them and we don't really get much more on that as they travel to vantress will uh actually has a secret to trade to uh what is it indralon Uh, for the location of their father so one of the things is in order to get information out of the magic mirror of indralon you need to tell it a secret it doesn't know and uh so will trades a secret which is hinted that he know he's aware of the existence of other planes because we see him do like a little scrying sheet in ice and he sees like other places that are hinted to be other planes uh, so th- for the location of their father, Indralon shows them a stag in a particular meadow in the wilds that Elowin recognizes. And so uh, she decides to take the party to Garenbrig, where they can take the Noman portal into the, re- into the wilds. All right. So this part, uh, what did everyone think of Elowin? Oh, I adore her. Um, she, she was mean at first. And then the longer I read the novel... Um, she functions largely as an exposition character. She is the person who explains the rules, or in many cases, the the fact that there are no rules um, of this world to the kids and the reader. And I think she was a really effective vehicle for that. Um, giving her 
that really um got she know it all it's not even just know she is just so arrogant and so condescending um but um i i think by the end of the novel i think we understand that there there really is underneath that um a real sense of of justice and goodness and and virtuous intent um she is just old and smart um because <laughs> by the way like we have a novel that not only has 17 year olds oh i guess they're 18 now um at this part of the story but has an old female knight who knows everything and that's great and she's not just like a old lady like like impa old lady sitting on a stoop imparting information she is out in the wilds fighting with everybody else uh, leading the charge um she's fantastic she's so fun she's also one of the characters who introduces us to the fact that the wilds aren't evil yeah and that they're frequently just misunderstood yeah um a, a big part of the questing of the knights of vantress is that uh they're looking more for information than for great knightly feats like slaying dragons or epic fights um so they they are the knights that go out and like talk with the elves and talk with the dwarves and stuff um so and elowen has is is old and has been doing this for a very long time and and thus knows the ways of the world um better than anybody else probably in the realm at, at this point um and and she I think she's just an effective narrative vehicle and all packaged into a very fun character. Kate is excellent at making the characters do a lot of what would normally be dry narrative work while also feeling like fully realized people. I think it goes without saying I really like her. Yeah, she's she's an interesting character and I enjoyed the way that she approaches a lot of things, um, making sure that the reader realizes that Sometimes the solution to every problem isn't always with brawn and might. Sometimes you have to think your way around problems. But that's more from later parts in the story. But she's a really great character for that. All right. So the party travels to Garenbrig, where above Garenbrig, they notice something we didn't mention earlier. I don't think that Lochthwain is a floating castle and has taken up uh, residence above Garenbrig. So this is also why a lot we see a lot of the Black Knights riding ravens, uh, because it's kind of impractical to get a horse up and down a uh, to a castle like that. Yeah, so so Emberith, I think, is my favorite court, but Lochtwain is really clear. Like, the front of the castle's like the prow of a ship. It's like riding on top of a thundercloud. They have raven knights. <laughs> like... Everything about it is so cool and like so it's so Arthurian fantasy turned up to like not even 11, like 15. It's just it's absurdly amazing and fantastical. So they're they end up uh, getting inside the castle and they're greeted by King Yorivo, who is a giant who thinks very well of their parents and their mother, especially. I should note here that. In the months that the king is missing, people begin to suspect the worst about Queen Linden, and old rumors about her possibly having killed the twins' mother resurface, and that maybe she killed the king too to take his crown. And so, like, 
you know, the twins are getting very frustrated with people because they know their mother's a good person. And it's very nice to see, like, all the other rulers have a great deal of respect for her as well. Um, so, and Yorvo is definitely one of them. Yorvo is so fun. He's so nice. He, he agrees the following morning to set the Nomon portal to where they need to go. Because you have to kind of, like, rearrange the henge. So it's a job that really only a giant could do. Because these these massive stone structures... Uh, as I mentioned, Queen Ayara is there. Well, Queen Ayara is missing, I should say. Uh, she is not there with the rest of the party from Loch Duane, And there are rumors of this great hunt every year during the winter solstice that the queen might participate in. And there are all sorts of rumors about what this could be. Uh, you know, almost like fairy tales that have popped up around what this great hunt is and kind of this dark legacy and, oh, is Queen Ayara really, you know, one of those elves of the wilds? They suspect that she could very much be the one who has killed the king. Because they don't trust her. Because she's a mono-black character and they're evil. They all go through the portal into the wilds, but they're all separated and before they can all reunite, they're beset by a lich knight. So uh, Titus ends up being killed trying to hold off the knight while the rest of them try and cross a magical bridge. As I mentioned before, in the wilds, crossing a bridge, even there might be like two bridges next to each other, but they don't necessarily cross over to the same shore. And depending on the kind of bridge, it might take you to a more dangerous area. So there are like these metaphysical levels to the geographic locations in the wilds. It kind of reminds me of like Theros and Nyx. Like you can, you can't really go, you can't, it's very hard to navigate where you're going to be going from one side to the other without certain protections. So they see the stag thereafter and the stag ends up running uh, and crossing, it's called by something, and it crosses this obsidian bridge, which is supposed to be the most dangerous bridge, and they follow it through, um, and where they follow it, it leads them to this meeting ground of the Elvish Council in the wilds, and there they kind of listen in as uh, Ayara is arguing with the Elvish Council against a war that Oko has been proposing. And now up until this point, they all had thought Oko was an elf. But as they see other elves for themselves, they're like, Oko doesn't quite look like that. And the elves themselves are, su are suggesting that Oko isn't one of them. So we don't know if this is even Oko's true form or if it's his imitation of an elf or whatever. He is a shapeshifter. Um, and we've seen he doesn't have to shapeshift back to his original form in order to shapeshift away. Oko catches them sneaking away and does and uh, essentially lures them into a fairy circle uh, and reveals that he transformed their dad into the stag and then transforms Elowin into a bird uh, and she flies away and he sets Garuk to guard them. I'm sorry, Garrick to guard them while he goes and pressures the Elvish Council to go to war. Now his plot slowly comes into focus as it becomes clear that that great stag that he transformed their father into is going to be used as the prey for the elves' great hunt in order to force a war because the elves will have killed the High King. 
they manage to talk to Garrick a little bit. Uh, Will really leverages uh, uh, a little bit of a relationship he's built up with him, a uh, rapport. Uh, and they attempt to remove the hedron that was implanted in him in at the end of Duels 2015 by you, the player. Hooray! Why did I do that for? <laughs> but it's brimming with black power. It's like it's clearly been overwhelmed by Garrick's curse. And the curse just goes wild. Um, Garrick breaks free of Oko's glamour. Well, they do remove the Hedron. Uh, and he goes to hunt for Oko in order to pay him back for what he did. Uh, as they go, however, they see the great hunt has already begun. And so all these elves are mounted, chasing down the great stag. Meanwhile, they've mostly lost all of their mounts. And the elves and the stag were moving with a kind of supernatural speed that they couldn't catch up with anyway. They figure Garrick is going to be their best chance of, uh, follow, of, of being able to catch them. And so they follow Garrick, uh, but they end up getting into a fight on a bridge, and Garrick is knocked into the water, and Will jumps in to save him. But when Will jumps in, uh, they, all, they both almost drowned, essentially. Uh, but the Cauldron of Eternity appears, and they're both saved in, like the inside of the cauldron, which raises to the surface and expunges Garrick's curse. All the black mana from Garrick's curse is absorbed into the cauldron and Garuk, uh, Garrick is free. All right. So <laughs> I cannot, I, I'm so used to saying Garuk that like, it's hard to say Garrick. He feels more like a Garuk. Uh, anyway, what did y'all think of this, this part? I love the fact that the cauldron, um, like requires that you be in it to for it to work its magic on you similar to the lloyd alexander black cauldron story how someone who is willing to sacrifice their life to destroy it has to go into it before it can be like destroyed because otherwise the dark lord can use it to put corpses in and reanimate them at will um i'm really interested to see what the card looks like but the fact that it absorbed all of Garrick's black mana, and I feel like, I'm not sure if it was ever blatantly said why it appeared to Will in his time of need, but I would like to believe that it revealed itself because of his selfless act of trying to save Garrick, even though he didn't have a huge chance of doing it by himself. The cauldron reveals itself to those who are worthy, um, yes. which is cryptic, as the magic of the wilds is. And um, I I really appreciated that. Um, so so very early on in Magic, we have the Golgothian Silex, the the Magic Bowl, and um, I really like that. Twenty six years later, we now have the Cauldron of Eternity, the Magic Bathtub. <laughs> I I think that's really great. But but I do like if you don't think Oko is inspired by Shakespearean language and mercurialness. When they meet him in a grove, he's sitting on a uh, a forest throne contemplating a skull, like in Hamlet. Like, he just throws a Hamlet reference in there. It's really adorable. I, I just thought, I, I, love, I love the way he goes from sweet-talking to angry and condescending in a, with a flip of a switch. He is... Um, turmoiled emotion and you never know which one is going to come out every facet of his personality shape shifts 
in different ways and and he's just never the same person from moment to moment but there is this overarching oko-ness like which oko are you dealing with right now is it the same oko you were talking to 10 minutes ago like th this is the problem rowan ran into earlier in the book it's like one moment oko was just a stranger on the road and 10 minutes later he is forming a plan to kidnap their father and it's like um he's i'm just never gonna stop talking about oko because he's so good but also yay garrick is cured i feel like my player efficacy from duels went out the window the undead, the only thing I did, <laughs> aside from Chand helping Chandra um, defeat Ramaz. So. What I will say about the whole worthy aspect is that both Garrick and Will have proved themselves pretty persistent people. Garrick especially has been very dogged in whatever he does. So I would think a cauldron centered around the virtue of persistence, uh, especially with Will, who kept trying to reach out to Garrick despite every reason not to. Uh, finding them both worthy, I think, was was made sense. So now that he's cured, and first of all, I should mention, this is like the first time in a decade we've seen a cured Garrick, a, a not-cursed Garrick, because I think he kept appearing so much as a green card um, that people forget that, like, in his very first appearance is when he was cursed. So, so literally, the only other story we've had without a cursed Garrick is the Wild Sun, the web comic that tells his origin story. Uh, that was one of the earlier web comics, I believe. Um, we have not, we have not had Justice Frame story. Yeah, yeah, we have not had a a regular Garrick appear in magic fiction in that's got to be close to a decade so now cured garrick tracks the stag and the great hunt of elves to this witch's glade where the the uh elk is hiding behind a a well that something's very funny here there's a there's something weird going on here and there's a standoff as queen linden arrives on griffinback because elowin as a bird had flown all the way back to Ardenvale to warn them uh, of what was going on. And Queen Linden suspected that this is where her husband as the elk would go. And we find out why in a minute. We we learn that um, Elowin is also... Um, she, she mentions earlier in the book that she has also been hexed by a witch. And uh, her... her or, uh, she is hexed to be hexproof. Um, so Oko's transformation magic doesn't hold on her for very long so she is able to kind of rally the forces and i think that's really cute but as they're trying to talk down the elves queen ayara shoots the stag after being told it's king kenrith wait wait you 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 missed the quotation marks around queen ayara oh there. queen ayara who is really oko in disguise and this is kind of you know, even, I have to say, even the, the Demir shapeshifter extraordinaire, uh, Lazav hasn't really been used as a shapeshifter to super great effect in a long time. What? So I like seeing a shapeshifter, uh, really take advantage of that power here. Okay. Uh, sorry. I, Hold up. Wait a minute. World of Spark. What? 
Uh, the zombie was the best part of that. Was... We don't need to. We don't need to get into that. You just said an argument. Lazav's use of shapeshifting was great in that book. Lazav actually being Chandra and using a flamethrower and throwing shuriken at at uh, Dovin was fantastic. Yeah, like that 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 was arguably my favorite part of that entire book. Like, so yes, <laughs> it was it was good. That was good. You're right, Jay. How does it feel to be? unemployed now that both Lorelai and Brian have their jobs <laughs> for correcting you on this minor inconsistency. <laughs> and this wasn't even like a factual thing. This is all qualitative. So anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, Oko reveals himself and both Garrick and the twins try to catch him, but he keeps shape-shifting between different forms. Becomes a drake. Yeah, they're not able to get him, and he ends up planes walking away. And Garrick, at the moment, is the only one who realizes what happened. Uh, so, Lyndon ends up, as peace is made, the real Queen Ayara comes out. Uh, the, the elves leave as, um, you know, Kenrith dies, and they all kind of hope this isn't going to leave, lead to war. Queen Lyndon reveals the truth. And that this witch's glade, there's a dead body at the bottom of the well with a sword that looks a whole lot like their, I forget whether it was Lyndon's or, or King Kenrith's. It was King Kenrith's sword. Uh, with a sword that looks a whole lot like their, their dad's sword, uh, through the skull eye, uh, Lyndon reveals that the Kenrith twins are the witch's children. The witch had hexed King Kenrith while he was still questing. Before he became the High King, he had disappeared for like a year, and he was hexed by this witch uh, with some kind of love spell. And the witch wanted these children so that she could drain their life force, essentially. I think she exsanguinates them for a potion. And Lyndon comes across this and just like, well, murders the crap out of this witch. I wouldn't really call it a murder. She just killed these babies. So the sword from the questing beast can restore. It, it gets like a, a, it's like a one up. You get, you get one do over. It can restore one life. And that sword was used. One of the swords was used to kill the witch. And it was left impaled in her because removing it would release the, would free the witch's soul. And so this like evil black smoke thing comes out and they end up burning the cottage in order to expel or, um, what's a better word for it? To, to, to kill the witch's spirit essentially and get rid of it for good. Uh, one of the swords, Lyndon's sword, I believe, was used on to resurrect the twins, but it's only meant for one person. But as they were both like young babies, it ended up working to restore both of them, but it entangled them in a metaphysical way. Uh, and so the other sword, the one that had been in the witch's skull and hadn't been used yet, uh, is used to restore King Kenrith's life. Um, so the king is brought back and they all have a moment, uh, where they're, appreciating that everyone's alive uh but then rowan is very very angry at this betrayal because they were always led to believe that their their mother had died and that it their mother technically she did well they were told a version of the truth but i would also be mad if my parents kept from me that actually 
your mother was pretty much a rapist who wanted a baby to murder. They were told a version of the truth, also known as a lie. <laughs> a lie of omission. Uh, it's, it's very Obi-Wan Kenobi. So Rowan is furious with her family and her, well, their spark ignite. And as Will is trying to calm her down, the two of them vanish. And Garrick, again, is the only person who recognizes what the heck's going on here. Now, what's interesting is Garrick in this scene gets a lot of characterization of who he is outside of the curse. And, you know, he feels like he owes a debt to the Kenriths. Uh, King Kenrith and Lyndon invite him back to Ardenvale, but that the thought of that civilization gives him the creeps. Uh, but he ends up, he ends up liking Kenrith because his nature reminds him of his own father. And so he vows to the parents whose kids just disappeared that he believes he knows how to find them and he will go and make sure that they are safe. Uh, and that's kind of where the, the book ends. So Battle Bond takes place at some point after this. We don't know exactly yet. I'm sure when it becomes relevant, it'll, it'll be revealed. Uh, but so that's how the story ends. What did everyone think? That was great. I loved Kate's use of various um, tropes and subverting them to not exactly be the exact thing that you would expect. Um, like you said, we didn't get the evil stepmother, even though um, Lyndon could have done that with the uh, the the witch spawn children. Um, she always came across as very stern but fair. Um, I also liked that th there was just a lot of really well done storytelling and there were some surprises in there that you wouldn't have expected. Um, oh man, it, it was just, there, there's a lot of stuff there that I really enjoy the way Kate told the story in a way that grasping at straws here as, as, as to how I want to explain this, um, I'll go while you think of your words. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, there's two reasons why I don't like the ending. I mean, I like it. I, I'm, I'm not being very serious here. But if, like, someone killed me, and they used the same thing to bring my sister and me back to life, like, we're different people, I would be really mad about that. No, I don't want to count. We don't count as the same person. It doesn't count. So I'd be really mad if that could, if that worked on me. I would want to re-die because it shouldn't count. <laughs> and then you have to go, like, literally everywhere with her. Yeah, that would be, that's crap. I, no, doesn't, it, it shouldn't count. So what I will say is that the implication is that there are not two people who share a soul, but two people who are metaphysically entangled. They share a spark. That's arguably worse. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be entangled. <laughs> The other thing that made me mad is I'm tired of witches being evil. I mean, babies are terrible. They are. Yeah. Oh, I I am here for the pro witches eating babies take. I love I'm this. I'm gonna wow. take that back and say, if you know me, you know that I absolutely love babies. But still, if you want to eat your babies, that's your prerogative. All right, who on the cast is pro baby eating? Oh, me. Let's have eyes. I do not like children, I, so go for it. I'm pro-baby eating, but I also like babies. All right, and then anti-baby eating. 
Aye. Aye. Okay. So now now everyone knows where we all stand on this, and we can move on. Maybe you're not that bad, Jay. <laughs> it's a modest proposal. So other thoughts. Um, I like it. I adore uh, the way Kate writes. All her stories are structured in such a way that every piece interlocks with the other pieces around it and other pieces from earlier in the story. Um, of all the people who have written for Magic um, that I've read, I, I, she uses foreshadowing um, so much better than anybody else. Um, everything in this novel is foreshadowed, I think, really, except the fact that the swords can bring people back to life. Um, that's the thing that, like, I learned and was like, eh, that's kind of late in the book to hear about this right before it happens. But, like, um, hinting at everything, the, the way that Elowin was hexed, um, that Oko was gonna put glamours on people, um, and get himself into trouble because of Garrick. I mean, he's very hesitant to even keep Garrick near him. Um, and that ends up being one of the things that kind of takes him down in the end. Um, I love, speaking of the Wild Sun, I, I, I adore the Wild Sun um, of all the early webcomics. I think it's one of my favorites. Garrick's origin story is very sweet um, and very tragic. Uh, his, his father tries to protect him from being pressed into service in the army um, and uh, it ends up being jailed and killed for it. And this book references that for the first time. Um, we we get a Garrick who remembers his parents, who remembers everything his father sacrificed for him, who remembers love and caring and stewardship. Um and, and that is where Garrick is brought back. He isn't just a ruthless hunter. He is someone who has a lot of compassion, who has a lot of drive, who is inspiring and smart um, in his own way and um, persistent. And uh, he's just a really great guy. Um, and that's, that's where we end up with him. And I think that's really heartwarming and... Um, as much of, uh, um, I mean, this is an ongoing story in an IP, and, and there, there is no happily ever after, because things always continue, but if we never saw Garrick again, Garrick seems like he's in a really happy place, and that's a, such a good thing for that character, who has spent his entire career in magic so far being a victim. I really appreciate that as a conclusion to this story. I just wanted to comment real quick. Uh, your your mention of the foreshadowing for Kate, I love that she put a literal Chekhov sword up on the wall that they mentioned early on. Yeah. Was it early in the book? I, I couldn't remember by the time I got to the end, and I didn't go back and check. They mentioned there was a sword that looked like it had been depleted of power early in the... Um, early in the story, and now that I'm thinking about it, it's like the gun hanging behind the bar. Okay, then I take back the comment about the sword. I, I couldn't remember if it was mentioned before. I remember they had mentioned something and something about depleted power. I don't think they mentioned the resurrection power. Right, but but they mentioned the the depleted... Yeah, like, like it's... Yeah, if, if I, I trust you. If it, if it was there, then I, I did not remember it by the time I got to the end and, and did not have time to go back and check. But yeah, like, 
Um, I mean, that's something I had said about the Bolas stories and the twinning and foreshadowing and everything. And that happens again here. And I, I will read anything Kate writes for magic enthusiastically. Um, she's so good. This is the first magic story in like quite a long time. And this includes like a lot of the magic fiction that has been released as web fiction in like the past five years ish that felt like an actual story i don't i don't know if that makes sense it didn't sound it didn't feel like story beats being it wasn't a series of vignettes yeah well it's like the combination of that combined with or it's that combined with not being like you're going to hit this story beat and once you're done with that story beat you know that you are just headed to this next story beat that is going to happen. And I think a lot of that is partially a result of like the release timing of the novel in comparison to the card set. But it's also just like, I don't know, satisfying, especially after like such a large event like War of the Spark, where it was like everything was on the cards, everything was known in advance, you knew what was going to happen in the novel, and you were like, okay, well, when's this event going to take place? And there wasn't, like, much room to breathe for an actual story to be told and you to have, like, I don't know, take anything away from it. I think it's great that they have backed away a bit from, I didn't like it at first, but from backing away from the story spotlights being more like a storyboard. And the story spotlights aren't out yet. I'm not going to comment too much on the ones for this set. But in pre- before War of the Spark, especially for like Ravnica Allegiance uh, and Guilds of Ravnica, the story beats were, and we see it with Django Wexler's fiction, the story beats were much less prescriptive. They're like, these are the things that are happening in the story, but it's not like they rescued these prisoners and then they went to this and then this happened. It was like, oh, this is some drama that's building and this is some drama that's building and this is a resolution and it's much less prescriptive, which is, I think, good for the authors. Yeah, and I'm glad, uh, Carrie, you brought up the release schedule because this is, hey, any Watsi people listening to this podcast episode and have made it this far, please keep releasing things before the set is out. This was fantastic. Um, I really enjoyed this. This is something people have been asking for for literally the entirety of the time the story has been uh, post-Magic Origins, I think. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Battle for Zendikar had too many stories, and that lesson was learned quick. But Battle for Zendikar and Oath of the Gatewatch, we were, there was like all these filler stories like weeks after the set was out. And that was just grueling to get through. It's like, just get us to the next thing we already know happens in the story it was also that combined with or it was also that and the fact that to kind of subvert fan expectation you always had to have like some kind of twist that was still technically in the set story but took place after the last story event so it's like oh no emrakul was controlling tamio oh no kozilek's there oh no obnixilis ruined the hedron matrix and it's like okay like, I, it's just dragging you along from one thing to the next, and um, I didn't know how much I hated that until I had to read, like, an actual magic story that I enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I will give, um, I mean, this is the first story that has come out after the Bolas arc. We have spent Origins through War of the Spark, um, well, Origins through 
Eldritch Moon was kind of the prelude, and, and then really Kaladesh through War of the Spark on, on this Bolas arc um, consistently. And and this is new territory, and I think that's really refreshing. This is a story that it doesn't matter what's happened in Magic's past uh, for the most part. Um, if you haven't been paying attention to Magic until now, congrats. Everything you need to know about Garak's past is in the first chapter. And um, otherwise, this entire book it stands by itself and that's fantastic it's really refreshing i don't know this is supposed to launch a new arc apparently i don't know what the heck in here is contributing to a future arc but uh that's exciting i just loved everything about this so let me take a moment and mention two characters that uh that kate created that i just are absolutely completely meaningful for for this. I mentioned before the Kenrith family portrait, and Eric and Hazel were uh, Kate's creations for the story, and their addition just made this family so much more real. You know, like, it is a real family. Um, one of my big issues, and I've mentioned Chandra in the past, you all, you all know my, my son is biracial and Chandra's story didn't really emphasize that the biracial aspect of, of her, her life. Whereas this story, like we have custom art made for these two young children that are from a different mother than their older siblings. Um, but very visibly have, you know, black hair. They're very, very, very biracial they look exactly like some of my friends kids um and it was just a very beautiful thing to see and honestly like seeing it up there in a way that magic hasn't done before was really impactful and having them in the story in that way rather than having uh linden's race feel kind of tacked on as as almost tokenism uh it made her presence there feel more organic uh with the kenrith's younger siblings in a way it was still used like it wasn't just tokenism and the fact that it was there just to be there it was actually a point of emphasis in the story for a reason why people would suspect that the 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 older twins or the twins basically are have a different mother, kids right yeah Right, right, right. But it was also handled so gracefully from the stepmother perspective that the twins, and you get it, it comes across really well in the story, the twins don't think of of Lyndon as anything but their mother. She's not their stepmother. She is their mother. And for anyone who's been in a blended family, like, that is so important. It was so graceful that when, like, when the part about her, them not looking like her came up, I had to go back and read their original description of her because I completely missed it. That, like, that they didn't look like. I had to go back and read her description, the description of her in the first chapter of the book because I completely missed that part and then it made a lot more sense. So it, it, was, some, it was something that wasn't harped upon until it really mattered. And, and I think I want to just continue the positivity a little bit because this is nice and wholesome. It's so different for the show. Um, I like shout out to Lyndon, who is more qualified than anybody else to rule the realm um, other than than Kenrith. Um, and and 
takes so much shit from everybody. Um, the way, the way that so many people doubt her and question her just because she's a woman in the position instead of a man afterwards. Um, and everybody forgets that, uh, yeah, sure, Kenrith, um, quested through all five courts. Um, Lyndon did four. Technically, she's more qualified. And the only one she, she only didn't get through Emberith because she stopped questing to raise Rowan and Will. Um... And so, like, she's... Kenrith is the only one who's done five, and, and she's done four, and that's still more than anybody else. Um, so it's, you know, it's very clearly a gendered thing where she is literally the most qualified person to fill in for um, Alginus when he's gone, and everyone still questions her anyway, and that's relatable. Um, I can... I can Little little bit about being trans on the internet is that uh, when you have a masculine username, people don't question you as much as when you have a more feminine username. And that's been an enjoyable thing for me to experience, I tell you that much. Um, but the, the way that Lyndon handles that um, with the absolute grace and confidence in herself... Um, is inspiring she she is the best person um in the realm i think um easily my favorite character from the set like she she is just the model parent you know besides the lying to your kids about their mom part um everybody has flaws but uh this book just does such good work for women in general and and linden in particular and it's kudos to kate for that um, and, and that's kind of where we're ending this episode. No final thoughts this week. No final thoughts this week because uh, we're, we're kind of long. Um, but we had a whole novel to talk about, so I, don't blame us. Um, and if you also want to have a whole novel to talk about and have other people to talk about it with, you can head over to patreon.com slash thevorthoscast where everyone who supports us gets access to our Discord community, where Vorthoses around the world are reading the Wildered Quest and enjoying previews from Throne of Eldraine and getting so excited for all the little tropey things that we're going to talk about in our Flavor Gems episode in a couple weeks and uh, having a great time. So uh, if you want to keep this show running, you can head over to Patreon and support us starting today. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Vorthos Cast.